Section 9 of Clever Hans, The Horse of Mr. Von Austen by Oscar Funkst, translated by Carl Leo Rahn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, Explanation of the Observations, Part 3. Now a few words on the manner in which horses react upon the call of their names. We are not concerned with those that are seldom or never called by name, such as those in the cavalry. I have not discovered one horse that constantly and unequivocally reacted upon the mention of its name, though I would not assert that there are none that would do so. I was nearly always able to convince the owners or grooms, who at first had maintained a contrary opinion, that any inarticulate sound was capable of producing the same effect as the calling of the name. What the significance of inflection may be, I am not at all certain. When a certain one of a number of horses standing in the same stable was called, all of them responded by pricking their ears, raising their heads, or else turning about. For this reason, the reaction of the horse specifically called lost all significance. Likewise, the call which is ordinarily used in lunging, when the man in the centre of the circle wishes the horse to change its gait, or to advance toward him, also proved ineffectual as soon as the man inhibited every sort of movement. A slight nod, on the other hand, was always effective. Several times I have tried to call horses to me, when they were free and running about in the arena, but was unsuccessful. After I had given them some sugar, however, they would always come to me, whether I had called or not, and would then refuse to leave my side. But this is a matter of common observation. I would, however, regard all of these tests as merely provisional. In spite of the greatest effort, it was not always possible to control all the conditions of the experiment, and furthermore, the number of tests would have to be materially increased in order to yield an appreciation of the difference due to race, age, and the individual variation and training of horses. But we may even now be sure of one thing. Over against the certainty with which horses react to visual stimuli, in the form of movements perceived, it does not appear that the formation of auditory associations is greatly favoured by nature in these animals. Indeed, auditory associations are far less common than is generally supposed. Footnote. All of the authors who have given practical suggestions for the training of horses, whether free or with lunging reins, have great faith in the efficacy of calls, but usually recommend a mingling of calls and movements in the way of signs. Thus, Loiset, Boucher, von Armin. It therefore cannot be stated just in how far the calls really affect anything. In other cases, I am inclined to doubt outright the influence which is ascribed to the auditory signs. Meehan gives an account of a horse that was exhibited in London in the early 90s of the last century. Pouring with his hoof, this horse apparently was able to count and answer questions in arithmetic, and among other accomplishments, he was supposed to be able to understand something of language. In reality, however, he merely responded to cues which were disclosed to the reporter by the trainer. In pawing, the horse was guided by movements of the trainer, and in nodding or shaking the head, he reputedly got his cue from the inflections of the man's voice. Is it not probable that in this latter case it was the movements which accompanied speech that were alone effective in inducing the nod or the shake of the head, so that the exhibitor was deceiving not merely the public but also himself? Perhaps we may also doubt the exposition made by the well-known hippologist Colonel Spohr.
he tells us that it is easy to train horses to raise the left foot or the right foot in response to the commands left foot or right foot and that it will be the forefoot when one is standing in front of the horse and the hind foot if one stands near the rear. It cannot be so very difficult, he thinks, even to get the horse to understand the commands left or right forefoot and left or right hindfoot, and all without any other aids but the spoken words. Should this really be possible without even the slightest kind of designating movement? The following case, again, I believe is undoubtedly based on a misinterpretation. Redding relates concerning his 19-year-old horse that he himself had owned for 13 years and had always kept in single harness, that this horse not only understood the meaning of a long list of words such as bureau, post office, school, churchyard, apple, grass, etc., but he also knew a number of persons by name as well as their places of residence. If he were told in advance to halt at a certain residence, he would do it without any further aid from the driver. For this reason, the happy owner felt certain that the animal possessed a high order of intelligence and that this horse does reason. What sources of error were here operative, whether signs were given by means of reins or head or arm movement, could be determined only by a careful examination of the case. And finally, we would exercise some reserve in entertaining the suggestions for the acoustic education of horses, which have come from various sources. Colonel Spohr, whom we have just been mentioning, thinks that it would not be a difficult matter to get a horse to respond with a walk to one smack of the lips, with a trot to two smacks, and with a gallop to three, and then he could be made to slacken his pace once more into a trot in response to one long-drawn pst and to stop in response to two. Others have gone even further. De Croix, at one time leader in veterinary affairs in France, conceived the idea of working out a universal language as regards the commands that are given to horses, in the humane purpose of sparing them the whip. He called it volapuk ipik. For the commands go, right, left, and halt, he suggests these, he, ha, he and ho, respectively. From these, it was possible to make eight combinations, such as he he for trot, he he for left about, while the single he was to mean forward to the left, ho ho for back, etc. Duquois thought that the whole system could be inculcated in a very few lessons. He even had a medal struck which was to be awarded to the driver or rider who should first exhibit a horse, thus instructed, to the Société Nationale d'Acclamation de France, of which Duquois was president. Eight years have elapsed since then, but we have heard of no one who has earned the medal mentioned. In the future, greater care will probably be exercised in the putting forth of such suggestions, and two sources of error may be guarded against, namely, involuntary movements on the part of the rider or driver, and imitation of the horses amongst themselves. One horse, guarded by an experienced rider, may serve as a copy for ten others with inexperienced men in the saddle. End of footnotes. Horses compare very unfavourably with dogs in this respect. The latter easily learns to react with a high degree of precision to auditory signs, as I learned from a series of experiments which I was enabled to perform. The Austin horse, therefore, does not stand alone among his kind in his inferior auditory equipment, as one might be tempted to believe at first blush. 
it is easy to explain the musical accomplishments. The tones which were played for the horse were known to Mr. Von Austen, since he himself played the harmonica, or when someone else played it, he, Mr. Von Austen, could see the stoppers. He then thought of the number which indicated the tone in question, and Hans would tap it. Thus arose the tale of the horse's absolute tonal memory. This tale gained much support at the time, from an experience which has been recounted to me by the well-known composer, Professor Max Schillings. It shows more clearly than any other report how very confused were the threads that had been spun in the whole matter. In order to test the horse's musical ability, Professor Schillings played, let us say, three tones upon the accustomed instrument. Complying with Mr. Von Austen's wish, Professor Schillings always indicated which three he was about to play. The horse always tapped them correctly. In order to make a decisive test, Professor Schillings then played, without anyone's knowledge, a note that was in reality a third below the one he had indicated to Mr. Von Austen. Curiously enough, Hans tapped, as a matter of fact, the number indicating the note that was actually struck. And it was only in the third repetition, and after many exhortations on the part of the master to have a care, that the horse finally tapped the number indicating the note Mr. Von Austen had in mind, and which in truth was the wrong one. This curious experiment seemed to those to whom Professor Schillings communicated it to yield conclusive evidence of the horse's absolute hearing. As a matter of fact, however, Professor Schillings had unwittingly, and contrary to any intention on his part, inspired the horse. Standing, as he did, just behind the right shoulder of the horse, he was able to interrupt Hans, who had begun to tap in response to a move on the part of Mr. Von Austen, by means of an involuntary movement which did the work of a closing signal. At the same time, Mr. Von Austen, likewise standing to the right of the horse and expecting more taps, remained perfectly quiet. This is as it was in the tests, mentioned on page 71, in which, of two experimenters, one started the horse tapping and the other stopped him. Mr. Von Austen very probably lost patience after Hans had seemingly given the wrong response twice, and thereupon came nearer to the horse, and thus by monopolising its attention, so as to exclude Professor Schillings, was able to get the response so ardently desired. Footnotes General Noise has left us a story of the middle of the last century, which in essential detail corresponds closely with the one just given. The scene is a French chateau, and the hero is a rapping table, highly prized on account of the intelligent answers it could give. Seated about it were a number of ladies, and at the other end of the room sat a French savant, a member of the academy. The ladies requested him to put a simple mathematical question to the table and complying with their request he asked for the cube root of four none of the ladies who sat at the table knew the solution the table unhesitatingly gave six raps this was refused as incorrect the table was asked to try again and again it rapped six for this it was bitterly reproached Hereupon the questioner, who during the whole time had remained in his place at the other end of the room, came forward with the confession that the table was innocent, that he had made a mistake. He had asked for the cube root of four, but had really meant to ask for the cube of that number, namely sixty-four. And the table had, as a matter of fact, given the first numeral of that number. 
one is immediately struck by the analogy between this case and that of Professor Schilling's. In both cases, those immediately concerned, the women in this one, Mr. von Osten in the other, believe that a wrong answer is being given repeatedly. The cause of the error lies in a person who seemingly is not concerned with the response. The Frenchman asked the question, but did not sit at the table. Professor Schilling's sounded the notes, but it was Mr. von Osten who got the horse to tap. In both instances, the questioner asks one thing, but had something else in mind. With the Frenchman, it was a slip of the tongue. Mr. Schillings did it purposely. And finally, in both cases, the response corresponds not to the question that had been asked, but to that which had been thought, so that, though seemingly wrong, the response of both table and horse were really correct. By way of explanation, Noise believes that he has a case of true thought transference or telepathy, page 108. The questioner watched with utmost attentiveness the rapping of the table, and the women in turn regarded the man, and thus, Noise believes, the man's thought was transferred to the minds of the others without the mediation of eye or ear, etc., and hence unvitiated by the words that had been spoken. I myself prefer another explanation. At that moment in which the rapping arrived at the expected number, the Frenchman executed a movement characteristic of release of tension, and to this the women of the circle reacted. It was not necessary that they should be able to account for this afterwards, just as sometimes occurs in the case of thought readers. It is very probable, too, that they were not of a very reflective turn of mind anyway. We are warranted, I think, in regarding the two cases as identical in kind. End of footnotes. When, in tests such as these, two stoppers were opened and thus two notes sounded, Mr. Von Austin would count the number of stoppers intervening between the two, and Hans would tap the number. And so arose the tale of Hans's knowledge of musical intervals. Whenever the two notes were sung or whistled, in which case there would be no stoppers that could be counted, then Mr. Von Austin, who was quite destitute of musical knowledge, was at a loss, and also Hans. If, however, the intervening notes were sung, then everything went smoothly once more. Major and minor chords were regularly characterised as beautiful, all others as bad, but even here errors occurred. A musician had taught Mr. Von Austin these distinctions. The old man also knew the melodies that were played on the hand organ. Each one had a number assigned to it, and Hans was required to tap the number of the melody in token of recognition. Hans was as ignorant of musical time as he was of melody, and all attempts to get him to march in regular step were utterly futile. A number of musical tests were made in the absence of Mr. von Austen. In these, Mr. Hahn undertook the questioner's role, and since he had musical training, he was aware of what the numbers should be, even when he could not see the stoppers of the harmonica, and therefore we readily understand why it was that the horse responded so wonderfully in his case. The so-called musical ability of horses appears, from all that is known, to be confined within very narrow bounds. One fact is universally accepted, namely, 
Horses of the military are believed to possess a knowledge of the significance of trumpet signals and are often said to interpret them more readily than the recruits. Since no experiments had been made along these lines, I undertook to make a brief test of the cavalry horses mentioned on page 188. As in the preceding tests, the three animals were arranged behind one another with the customary distance of two horses' lengths between, and each was ridden by his accustomed rider. They were held by the reins, but received no aid of any kind, either to start them or to restrain them. A bugle then sounded the various signals at the other end of the barracks courtyard. We had been previously assured that the horses would certainly react without fail, but as a matter of fact the result was quite the contrary. Two of the horses did not move at all, and the third, a thirteen-year-old gelding, was startled nearly every time and would tear off in a gallop, even though a trot had been sounded. I would not, however, venture to draw any conclusions from results such as these. Many more tests would have to be made, and some of them upon the whole squadron, before a judgment could be given. Footnote. Professor Flugel, basing his statement on an article appearing in Schürer's Familienblatt, Berlin, 1890, number 8, page 128, gives an account of similar experiments which were supposed to have been conducted by the Zoological Society of Westphalia and Lippe, and presumably showed that the horses of the military do not understand the bugle calls. No matter how well trained a horse may have been, it would not respond to a signal. This report, however, is due to a mistake. Such experiments have never been made by the society mentioned, so I am told by its director, Dr. Rika. Nor do I know of anyone else who has made experiments of this kind. However, Professor Landois, an eminent zoologist, now deceased, founder of the scientific society mentioned, tested four circus horses for their musical ability and specifically for their sense of musical time. He arrives at the conclusion that horses have no feeling for time whatsoever. With but few exceptions, all experts today are of the same opinion. Horse trainers, especially, are universally agreed on this point. It is easy to see in any circus performance that it is not the horses that accommodate themselves to the music, but that the music accommodates itself to them, and that the trained horses are induced to do their artistic stepping only by the aids given by their riders. Furthermore, all these horses are trained without the use of music, it would therefore appear that the time has arrived when the tales of the dancing horses of the Sybarites ought no longer to gain credence. Two Greek writers, Athenaeus and Alien, tell us that the inhabitants of Sybaris, far-famed for their luxurious habits, had trained their horses to dance to the music of flutes during their banquets. Building upon this, the men of Crotona, in one of their campaigns against the Sybarites, ordered the flute players to play the tunes familiar to the Sybarite horses. Immediately the well-trained steeds began to dance, thus throwing the whole Sybarite army into confusion, and the men of Crotona won the day. The same story is told in more detail concerning the horses of the inhabitants of Cardia. Both accounts, somewhat mixed, are to be found in Julius Africanus, a writer of the 3rd century of the Christian era. In recent years, a French veterinary surgeon, Guénon, experimented on the effect of music upon the horses of the military. He entered their stalls, playing upon a flute, and noted their behaviour. 
four-fifths of the animals, he says, were deeply moved, yes, delighted even, charmé. One interpreter calls it a case of hypnosis. This emotional excitement was expressed somewhat unesthetically by the dropping of excrementa. Guénon characterizes the feeling state of these animals as being a mixture of pleasure and astonishment, of satisfaction and excitement. Mélange du plaisir et d'étonnement, de satisfaction et de trouble. He also asserts that the horse's musical taste is similar to our own. But I can find nothing in his whole exposition which might prove this. Indeed, there is nothing that could be interpreted as anything other than a purely sensuous effect upon the horses. I may go a step farther and say that thus far the sense of music, i.e. understanding of melody, harmony and rhythm, has not been shown to exist in any animal. Some animals may, however, be susceptible to the sensuous pleasantness of the tones themselves. End of footnotes. I shall now turn to peculiarities of character, highly humanised, which have been attributed to Hans. His sympathies and antipathies, so-called, were nothing but erroneous appellations for the success or failure on the part of the respective individuals to elicit responses. He who could procure answers frequently apparently stood high in the horse's favour. That Hans shook his head violently when asked by Mr. Von Austen, do you like Mr. Stumpf, and answered in the affirmative the further question, do you like Mr. Bush, was nothing but a confession, unwilling to be sure, on the part of the master himself. In the first case, the master thought no, in the second instance, yes, and the two thoughts were accompanied by the corresponding head movements to which Hans responded mechanically. Hans appeared to be well disposed towards me, but evidently because I always rewarded him liberally when he answered correctly, and I did not scold him when his responses were wrong, as did Mr. Von Austen and Mr. Schillings, who, instead of seeking the cause within themselves, were always ready to rebuke Hans for his contrariety and fickleness. The horse did not show, insofar as can be judged at all, any real affection for his master. On the other hand, it would be unwarranted to say that, in spite of all rewards, he developed a grudge against all those who bothered him with instruction and examination. Shortly after the close of our experimentation, it happened that Hans severely injured his groom by a blow in the face. Yet this man had always been very gentle with the horse, and had been forbidden by Mr. Von Austen to make Hans solve any problems for him. Experts assure me that we have here to deal not with a case of moral insanity, but with a very common experience. Although this view will probably be cavilled at by enthusiastic lovers of horses. The work of so excellent an expert as Phyllis, for instance, bears us out in this respect. The horse's supposed fickleness was nothing but a token of the fact that even those who were accustomed to working with him did not have him completely in hand. They simply did not understand how to obtain correct responses from the horse. It often happened that in the evening, when it had become so dark that the movements of Mr. Von Austen could no longer be seen, Hans had to suffer bitter reproaches because he made so many errors. That, in truth, he never was stubborn, and that the cause of failure really lay in the questioner, is shown by the fact that the mood, for which he was reproved, would disappear the moment the questioner voluntarily controlled the signals. We may add that there was no basis for the assumption that he had an uncommon 
finely constituted nervous system or was possessed of a high degree of nervousness. Both these phrases were often mentioned by way of explanation. Hans was restive, as horses usually are, and besides, he lived a life so secluded he was never allowed to leave the courtyard, that as a result he was easily disturbed by strange sights and sounds. There was not the slightest trace of the clinical symptoms of neurasthenia. On the contrary, he gave the impression of perfect health, which was curious enough when we remember his rather unnatural mode of life. Hans's stubbornness was a myth. He was suspected of it whenever the same error occurred a number of times in succession, i.e. when the questioner did not properly regulate his attention, page 146, or when he was being controlled by perseverative tendency, mentioned on page 149. Mr. Schillings, who has provided me with material here as elsewhere, relates the following episode which occurred on one such occasion. To one and the same question put alternately by Mr. Von Austen and Mr. Schillings, Hans responded correctly with two taps to the former, and just as persistently incorrectly with three taps to the latter. After Mr. Schillings had suffered this to occur three times, he accosted the horse peremptorily. And now are you going to answer correctly? Hereupon Hans promptly shook his head to the great merriment of all those present. Mr. Schillings had, with no accounted reason, expected a no. Hans was called willful whenever the same question was successfully answered by different responses, as frequently happened with the increasing tension that characterised the high numbers. Page 145. He was also regarded as stubborn when no reply at all was forthcoming, as in the tests with the blinders. Hans's supposed distrust of the questioner, when the latter did not know the answer to the problem, is nothing but a poor attempt to account for the failure of those tests. Hans's distrust of the correctness of his own responses was supposed to be evident from his tendency to begin to tap once more if, after the completion of a task, the questioner did not immediately give expression to some form of approval or disapproval, just as a schoolboy begins to doubt his answer if the teacher remains silent for a short time. In terms of the results of our experimentation, this would mean that whenever the questioner did not resume the erect posture after Hans had been given the final tap with the left foot, then the horse would immediately begin once more to tap with the other foot, page 61. As the evil characteristics, so, too, the goods. Thus, his precipitancy, which was supposedly evidenced by his beginning to tap before the questioner had enunciated the question, was nothing but a reflection of the questioner's own precipitancy in bending forward. Page 57. Never did Hans evince the slightest trace of spontaneity. He never spelled, on his own accord, anything like, Hans is hungry, for instance. He was rather like a machine that must be started and kept going by a certain amount of fuel in the form of bread and carrots. The desire for food did not have to be operative in every case. The tapping might ensue mechanically as a matter of habit, for horses are to a large extent creatures of habits. This lack of spontaneity could hardly be reconciled with the horse's reputation for cleverness. It would not be necessary to touch upon the signs that were supposed to betoken genius, the intelligent eye, the high forehead, the carriage of the head, which clearly showed that a real thought process was going on inside. All these, we said, would not need mentioning, 
if they had not been taken seriously by sober-minded folk. If there is a report that Hans turned appreciatively towards visitors who made some remark in praise of his accomplishments, it is evidence only in the observer's imaginativeness. Turning from a consideration of the horse to that of the persons experimenting with him, footnotes, I cannot enter upon a discussion of the latest psychological problems here involved, partly because that would take us beyond the purpose of this monograph, and partly because they are still moot questions and hence not suitable to popular treatment. Briefly, though, they are these. What is the nature of the relationship between cognitive and affective states on the one hand and involuntary, so-called expressive movements on the other? Is this connection an external thing, as it were, an association arising as a habit formation, or does every idea partake essentially of a motor character? Do purely cognitive states give rise to such movements, or does the movement impulse depend more particularly upon the effective consciousness accompanying the cognitive states? And in how far do given kinds of expressive movements depend upon certain ideational types? Compare page 95. Thus, what is the influence in the visual image upon the gestures for up, down, etc.? And then, are these involuntary movements, which are not noted, truly unconscious, or merely not attended to? In other words, are they below the pale of consciousness, or merely at the fringe? The various writers speak almost without exception of unconscious movements in the strict sense of the term. My own introspections, however, have led me to doubt whether they are quite unconscious. Since I have attained some practice, I am able to describe in detail, under conditions of objective control, my involuntary movements, no matter how slight, even down to mere muscular tensions. None of my subjects, however, has as yet succeeded in this. It is no very easy matter to be on the lookout for some unknown movements which might eventually occur, while attempting to concentrate attention to the utmost upon a certain definite ideational content, but this very dividing of attention affects a decrease in the force of the movement, and thus makes it all the more difficult to discover. From my own experience, however, I am inclined to believe that these movements are not unconscious, but merely unattended to. In other words, we have a narrowing down of the aperceived content within certain limits, but not a narrowing down of consciousness, much less a splitting of consciousness or of personality, as the thing unfortunately has sometimes been called. In order, however, not to be guilty of premature judgment, I have avoided the terms unconscious and unattended to, and choose expressions which leave these finer details untouched. End of footnotes. The first and most important question that arises is this. How was it possible that so many persons, there were about 40, were able to receive responses from the horse, and many of them on the very first occasion? The answer is not hard to find. All these persons came to the horse in very much the same frame of mind, which found a similar expression in all, in both posture and movements. And it was these motor expressions of the questioner, aside from the signs for yes and no, which I believe I have adequately explained on page 98, that the horse needed as stimuli for his activity. The next question that arises is, 
Why did only a few persons receive responses regularly from Hans, whereas the greater number were favoured only occasionally? What was the selective principle involved? The answer is that the successful person had to belong to a certain type, which embodied the following essential characteristics. 1. A certain measure of ability and tact in dealing with the horse. As in the case of dealing with wild animals, such as the lion, etc., Hans must not be made uneasy by timidity of the questioner, but must be approached with an air of quiet authority. 2. The power of intense concentration, whether in expectation of a certain sensory impression, the final tap, or in fixing attention on some idea content, yes, no, etc. It is only when expectancy and volition are very forceful that a successful release of tension can ensue. This release of tension is accompanied by a change in innovation and results in a perceptible movement. And it was only when the thought of yes or up, etc. was very vivid that the nervous energy would spread to the motor areas and thence to the efferent fibres and thus result in the head movement of the questioner. From infancy, we are trained to keep all our involuntary muscles under a certain measure of control. During the state of concentration just described, this control is relaxed, and our whole musculature becomes an instrument for the play of non-voluntary impulses. The stronger the customary control, the stronger must the stimuli be which can overcome it. The steady, unremitting fixation, which resulted in the horse's selection of the cloths, also involves a high degree of concentration. 3. Facility of motor discharge. Great concentration was necessary, of course, but not sufficient. Persons in whom the flow of nervous energy tended to drain off over the nerves leading to the glands and the vascular system might betray great tension, not so much by movements as by a flow of perspiration. We have many excellent examples of this given by Manouvrier or by a violent beating of the heart, blushing and the like, in short by secretory and vasomotor effects. Or it is not inconceivable that long dealing with the very abstract thoughts might have weakened the tendency of overflow to other parts of the brain, and that therefore the entire discharge is used up in those portions of the brain which are the basis of the intellectual processes. But if expressive movements occur, the motor pathways must be particularly unresisting in order to take up the overflow of psychophysic energy. This is the necessary condition for obtaining the tapping and the head movements on the part of the horse. Although for the tapping there is still one other circumstance necessary, namely, 4. The power to distribute tension economically, i.e. the ability to sustain it long enough, and to release it at the right moment, after the manner of the curves described on page 93, and to control properly the unavoidable variations which will occur. Footnotes. The mental state just described is probably essentially the same as that of the spiritualistic mediums when they are occupied with table wrapping and table moving. In both cases, concentration is very intense. In other words, the field of attention is limited. We saw that this state not only favours the tendency towards involuntary movement, but on account of the absorption of the individual's attention by a certain limited content, the person will be unaware of the voluntary movements as they occur. 
and we are not necessarily here dealing with neurasthenic, hysteric or other diseased nervous conditions. In the case of table wrapping, there are movements of the hands, in our case there are those of the head. Our head, balanced as it is upon the cervical vertebral column, is continually in a state of unstable equilibrium and therefore peculiarly susceptible to movement impulses of every kind. But I could induce not only movements of the head, but also of the arms and legs. And this by having the subject assume a posture which enabled him to hold arms or legs in as unstable a position as possible. He might stretch out his legs horizontally before him, or he could raise them vertically upwards, as in the handstand in gymnastic work. An extract from a treatise by Count A. de Gasparin, which appeared about the middle of the last century, may serve to show how close the correspondence between the two processes, that of getting the table to wrap and that of causing Hans to respond, really is. The report of this writer, based upon the detailed record of his tests in table movement and table wrapping, closely parallels in many minute details the observations which were made in the course of our experimentation with Hans. The case is all the more remarkable when we bear in mind that this writer did not seek the cause of the phenomena, as we did in involuntary movements, but thrusting aside this explanation, he posited the cause of the agency of some mysterious fluid. It may not be amiss to say that this, as well as most other references, were consulted after the present experiments and introspections had been completed. Of the page references preceding the following citations, the first always refers to the page in the French original, and the other, enclosed in brackets, to the parallel passage in the present monograph. Page 49, 31. Some questioners are especially suitable, experimentaires aux lignes, but in their absence other persons may also operate successfully. Le succès, quoique moins brillant à l'heure, n'est pas impossible. Page 25, 229. But even the most suitable questioners do not always succeed equally well. Le plus sûr d'eux-mêmes ne réussissait pas également tous les jours. Page 42, 151. When the questioner is in any way indisposed, the measure of success is also less. Page 91 and 87, 150. The questioner must first get into the sweep of things, en train, and once he has done so, all interruption whatsoever must be avoided. Page 91, 93. Unless there is sufficient tension on the part of the questioner, the test will fail. La volonté est elle absente, rien ne bouge. Page 210, 93. When there is too low a degree of tension, then too great a number will be tapped. Si forte volonté nulle les tables, arrête pas au moment où se termine le chiffre pensé, elles continueront indéfiniment. Page 31, 93. But too great concentration of attention will also produce failure. S'il ne réveille, du désiré trop fortement le succès et de mon patienté en castretard, je n'avais plus aucune action sur les tables. Page 36, 151. If the proper mood, en train habituel, is wanting and the tests are unsuccessful, it is best not to attempt some new and difficult experiment, but to turn to some that are simpler and more entertaining. La table obéissait mal, le coupe étant frappé mollement et comme un regret. 
Alors, nous avons pris un parti dont nous nous sommes bien trouvés. Nous avons persévéré et persévéré gaiement. Nous avons écarté la pensée de tentatives nouvelles et insisté sur les opérations essais et amusant. Après un certain temps, les dispositions étaient changées. Le table bondissait et attendait à peine nos commandants. Page 199-41-90 It is not necessary to enunciate the questions aloud. On est convenu que celui qui commanderait ne prononcerait pas à haute voix le nombre de coups, mais se contenterait de les penser. Après les avoir communiqués à l'oreille de son voisin, eh bien, la table a obéi. Il n'y a jamais eu les moindres erreurs. Page 199, 64 and the following. The large numbers are tapped more rapidly than the small ones. La table a indiqué notre âge tel qu'il était dans notre esprit, se hâtant même de la manière la plus comique lorsque le nombre de coups à frapper était un peu considérable. Page 210, 35 and the following. Tests in which procedure was without knowledge failed completely. Le table ne révèle pas ce qui n'est pas dans la pensée et dans la volonté de l'expérimentaire quand on veut les charger d'autres choses que d'obéir comme des membres on arrive à des erreurs continuelles. Page 28, 29, 217, 72. When of two experimenters each tries to get the horse to tap a different number, then that one who is better able to compel the animal's attention will be the successful one. L'une veut faire prévaloir une chiffre pensée plus considérable, l'autre une chiffre pensée moins considérable, et bien, l'opérateur le plus puissant de l'import. Ainsi A est chargé secrètement de faire frapper 24 coups, B est chargé secrètement de l'arrêter à 18, à l'import et les 24 coups s'achèvent, on fait maintenant l'envers. B est chargé sacrément de faire frapper 13 coups. A est chargé sacrément de l'arrêter à 7. À l'emport encore, et le chiffre 7 ne peut être dépassé. End of footnotes. The experience of a number of practical men who have had much to do with horses and yet achieved but very modest success with hands goes to show that it is not always the lack of sufficient authoritiveness mentioned under heading one that is the sole cause of failure, as has been claimed so often. That the horse was, to a certain degree, influenced by this element of authority is shown, however, by the following incident. A certain gentleman, when alone in the courtyard with Hans, received responses only so long as I, concealed in the barn, kept the barn door open just a little, so that my presence would be known to the horse. As soon as I closed the door, Hans refused to respond to the gentleman. Those who possessed sufficient power of concentration and the requisite motor tendency, the two characteristics mentioned under 1 and 2 above, were able to obtain responses from the horse without any previous practice. Practice merely affected a more economic distribution of attention, so that the larger numbers especially were more successful as a result, pages 68 and 89. 
those who were lacking either of the characteristics mentioned under two and three would not be aided even by the greatest amount of practice, as is shown by the case mentioned in supplement three, page 255. That many individuals were at first successful, but were later unable to get any successful responses, is to be accounted for by the fact that the power of concentration, at first present, later rapidly disappeared. This temporary increase in the power of doing mental work was at first investigated experimentally by Rivers and Kreppelin, and was called by them Antrieb, and aptly likened to the first pull of a team of horses in starting off. This, too, explains an experience which befell a number of the horse's visitors, who later described it to me. Wishing to utilise a momentary absence of Mr. von Austen, they excitedly put a hasty question to Hans, and with amazing regularity received correct responses. Besides Mr. von Austen, Mr. Schillings and myself, not many were always able to induce Hans to bring the coloured cloths or to execute the head movements. It was easy, on the other hand, to get him to nod. Therefore, there was some truth in Mr. von Austen's assertion that Hans would be unable to answer a difficult question if he had not previously indicated, by means of a nod, that he had grasped its imports. Those who were not concentrating sufficiently would not look into Hans's face when he was expected to nod, and would not bend over when Hans ought to begin tapping. Such persons could not, therefore, since they did not induce Hans to nod, elicit the tapping, I myself saw the no successfully elicited only in the case of Mr. Von Austen, Mr. Schillings and Mr. Hahn, the right and left only in the cases of the former two. It must remain uncertain whether the failure on the part of otherwise suitable persons to elicit the responses for right and left was due to their accompanying these ideas by movements of the eyes instead of by movements of the head. Page 106. For unfortunately, it was not possible to make special tests to discover whether Hans reacted to isolated eye movements. There is, however, more than one reason why I would doubt this. Taken all in all, there were but few persons who were entirely representative of the type described. Compare page 31. They were those who are commonly characterised as being of a lively temperament and strongly impulsive. Thus, Hans acquired a reputation for Einkennigkeit, that is, he would accustom himself only to certain persons. Such a reputation was hard to reconcile with his much-praised intelligence. In closing, just a word on the influence of the public that was present. As shown on page 69, the public in general did not influence the horse in his reactions. The effect upon the questioner, however, was unmistakable, and worked in a twofold manner. On the one hand, the questioner's zeal was increased, and with it the tension of concentration. On the other hand, it introduced an element of diversion, and attention was divided between the horse and the spectators, and thus concentration suffered. If the disturbing effect was slight, as in the case of Mr. von Austen, then the favourable influence exercised by the presence of the public outweighed the unfavourable. Mr. von Austen was, for that reason, often particularly successful when working in the presence of a large body of spectators. This was noted by many and was ascribed to the ambition of the horse. When, however, a person was easily diverted, as was Mr. Schillings, then the presence of the public had a less fortunate effect. This, then, completes my explanation of the facts gleaned from observation and experimentation. 
It accomplishes all, I hope, that may be expected of an explanation. All the known achievements of the horse, all the successes and failures of the questioner, have been reduced to a single principle. No secondary hypothesis has been invoked, and but slight pace has been given to the element of chance. Nevertheless, it may not be out of place to forestall two objections which might possibly be raised. First, some may assert that it was through our experimentation that the horse became mechanised and incapacitated as regards conceptual thinking, that formerly he really could solve arithmetic problems, and that only later developed the very bad habit of depending upon the signs which I gave him. This objection is to be refuted in that I did not originate these signs, but first noted them in Mr. Von Austen himself, and that Hans still works as faithfully as ever for Mr. Von Austen. I have learned from many trustworthy witnesses that the horse still continues to give brilliant exhibitions of his ability. If, on the other hand, anyone should assert that it was only with us that Hans reacted to movements, but that with his master he really thought and still thinks, then I must ask for proof. This latter argument is by no means very original. When Faraday in 1853 proved experimentally that table wrapping is the result of involuntary movements on the part of the participants standing about the table, the spiritualists asserted that his experiments had nothing in common with their own proceedings because his subjects, who by the way had been up to that time firm believers in table wrapping, probably did move the table, they said, while they, the spiritualists, do no such thing. End of section 9. Recording by Jordan Watts, Oxfordshire.